0: do it. So, Isaac, welcome.
1: Thank you guys for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, man, I'm
0: glad Happy to have you. Will you do us a solid and introduce yourself to folks that are listening?
1: Sure. Uh my name is Isaac Saul. I am a politics reporter. I believe I'm here because I am the founder of Tangle News, a politics newsletter. That summarizes the best arguments from the right and the left on the big debates of the day, and then shares my take. We are uh, independent, subscribers supported, totally ad free. Trying to change the news game a little bit, help America talk to each other, and settle some of the big debates. That's what I'm about. Yeah. Uh. You know. Excellent. Yeah. Do some weird stuff on the side, but that's me.
0: And yeah, you're spot on, brother. That's why you're here. I heard about tangle i think through 1440 maybe they were running some kind of ad click-through ad for you and started reading and was just like man a the writing is great b i'm somebody who really appreciates uh multiple perspectives and so this fits that bill right in that i you know i love seeing kind of a collated left right even though i think we can acknowledge that on the one hand that is a real artifact of what's going on. On the other hand, it's kind of not entirely uh, a real phenomenon in in the most grounded way because so many people are not clearly identified with either end of that spectrum. Nonetheless, it seems to persist. So it's uh, both both somewhat illusory and s- substantively affecting the way that discourse happens in this country. And I super appreciate your take, um, partially because I think we tend to see eye to eye on a lot of things and it's nice to you know, I read plenty of things that challenge my perspective. So every now and then it's nice to read something that is like, oh, <laughs> cool, I, I totally I'm with you. And this is a really cogent way of expressing and articulating, you know, what doesn't make sense about this polarized set of perspectives. So I'm super grateful that you are doing what you're doing. And for anybody listening, if you haven't checked this out, I totally recommend it. Um,
1: yeah, readtangle.com. That's the plug. That's the um, plug. Thank you. I really appreciate that. Uh, I am, you know, both trying to find kindred spirits and also trying to puncture the holes of some people who I think are in, you know, siloed information bubbles. Uh, so I am equally excited when I find somebody who's like, I don't agree with anything you say, but I like the way you say it. Yeah. And the people who are like, I, I'm i like, we're politi- politically simpatico. Um, that's exciting for me, too. And, you know, the left-right thing is a big thing that I am thinking about. Um, We can talk about that, I'm happy to. It's it's a really, the structure of the newsletter is something that I think is both key to our success, but also is a little bit of a catch-22 for the reasons you laid out. And I I struggle often with, you know, whether it's the right way to format things or if it's helpful to be sort of, you know, organizing opinions based on that left-right dichotomy.
0: I mean, I do think that there's some utility to it because it there, there are still so many folks that are so siloed and so many institutions that are so siloed that even if there are, you know, the emperor has no clothes on a certain level, at the same time, the emperor is parading around and everyone is still pretending that those things are, are genuinely extant um, intellectual and uh, institutional structures. So. I, I feel like to acknowledge the 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 fact that those things seem to exist and the fact that it's problematic, which I've seen you do on more than one occasion, I think it's super useful actually. Um, but you know, I'm curious to hear more from you about what you think the pros and the cons of that are.
1: Yeah, I mean I I well I I'll say I think there's there's a functional utility to it, which is that people want to know who to vote for and the left and the right broadly represent the Republican and the democratic parties. So in the duopoly that we're living in, which is not something I'm particularly keen about, uh, you know, people have basically two choices. And so once they have two choices, they're interested to hear what the representative arguments are for each of those sides. So I think that is basically the biggest reason, the biggest thing holding me back from, um you know presenting it that way i think there's also a really big upside to it which is that the left and the right often have points of common ground that mm-hmm. are not regularly pointed out in the media space so by organizing it in the left and the right and having arguments that are similar on both sides it's a good way to teach people you know there is a little bit of overlap here i mean today was a great example You know, we're recording this on Thursday, February 17th. And I wrote about the tension rising in Ukraine and Russia and what's happening there. And there's, you know, two two opinion pieces in there, one from the left and one from the right that are effectively saying the United States is a broken, dysfunctional country and we should not be spending our time, you know, worrying about what's happening in Ukraine. And that's like right wing populism and a very critical view of the U.S. from the progressive left. And those are like basically people making the same arguments for, you know, a little bit different reasons, but a lot of the same reason. Um, So I think that's helpful to see that, you know, those those two sides actually agree on quite a bit, despite Mm -hmm. being portrayed often as being at like 12 and six o'clock. The part that I hate about it is that, you know, I am an American who has very mixed political views and alliances. I don't identify particularly with any political party. And I don't like the fact that, you know, certain views are sort of relegated to the right or the left, because once somebody sees that a view is on the right, if they are a liberal American, they're going to go into reading that argument with a high degree of skepticism that uh, I think is, you know, unfortunate and a little counterproductive. So that's the part I worry about. But I haven't thought of a better way to do it yet. <laughs> well,
0: I mean, in some respe- respects, you could make the case that mm-hmm. by framing it the way that you are, that you are, for those that are willing um, to to move a little bit on this, fostering some epistemic humility so that people begin to recognize this thing that you pointed out about the populist right and the progressive left in today's issue, right? Because I think the more that people are in a position where they're exposed to the fact that there are more commonalities than they might otherwise think, the more likely it is that they might be open to actually read something and take it at face value and not immediately start to filter it through, uh, well, but, you know, that's the other team and the other team always is wrong and lies and they're bad. Uh, which I feel like it's actually pretty much that banal and simple. Often, even you know, though I don't think people generally are unsophisticated thinkers. I think we're at a moment where there is a lot of kind of reactive emotional capture um, that occurs when these tribal dynamics get writ large into you know pretty much all of the different aspects of the news cycle. I was reading something today you know, where, um, I don't know if you know who Heather Cox Richardson is, but yeah, of so, course, yeah. yeah. So, you know, I, I love Heather and I feel like her work has taken a, a, a very interesting turn since Biden was elected. And one where I, I don't agree with this, the way that she's presenting her case these days, because it feels very, um, quite frankly, jingoistic and propagandistic, uh, and I was, surprised by this right um and heather if you're listening i would be more than happy to have this conversation with you but you know um so she took a story from the new york times about the freedom convoy and whatever this reporter said recapitulated the narrative that these are all you know conservatives being funded by primarily american money and their anti-vaccine and like the whole basically horseshit story where I know that some of the folks and some of the organizers, that's true, but I have read both through Tangle and through other sources, a much broader range of perspectives on what's going on. And it's complex, like it's 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 not cut and dried um, or simple at all. And this tendency to want to reduce everything to either or, you know, is, I think, extremely troublesome and problematic.
1: Yeah, Heather Cox Richardson is a good example of watching somebody go from a sort of antagonistic, inquisitive role and observer to a kind of passive supporter basically overnight i mean that is mm-hmm. you know i something i like to say often about the trump era was that i actually don't think the press was that unfair to trump as a president i think they treated him how they should treat presidents the issue is that they don't treat other presidents the way they treated him right. that's the real problem it's not that you know they are supposed to be an unrelenting dog that Bites at every single mistake the government makes. the They have press secretaries and PR firms and their job is to tell us what the presidency is, you know, why it's so great. Media's job is to be a check on that that part of, you know, the power structure in our government. Um, and so I always kind of, that, that sort of rubs me the wrong way when people talk that way about Trump because I both understand it and I think to some degree contextually it's true, but I think that the solution is not be nicer to Trump, it's to treat more presidents the way Trump was treated, which is, you know, be antagonistic. That's your job. I think you're supposed to be bulldogs. Uh, but yeah, the tribalism stuff is really interesting. I mean, we, I, I don't think I'm speaking out of turn here, but we just had a brief conversation before we started recording the podcast about this, you know, a friend of yours, who's treating himself with Eastern medicine and for MS. And he goes to the doctor and, you know, this Western medicinal, Doctor has no interest in how this friend of yours is like, you know, beating the symptoms of his MS and just keeps asking him if he wants to take, you know, the Western style treatment, even though he's doing fine. And he's like, no, why would I stop doing this thing? And there's no curiosity, there's no interest. And, you know, that's a to me, when I'm listening to you tell that story, I mean, it's a perfect analogy for a lot of the political tribalism that we have now. And, you know, that's the That's the framework for a lot of people. I mean, I like, you know, spend most of my time in Brooklyn where I live. And a lot of the people here are the most progressive kinds of Americans, people I love very dearly, my closest friends. They have no interest in watching Tucker Carlson. Why would they? They're, you know, it's it's the same reaction. It's, aren't you curious a little bit why 4 million Americans watch his TV show every night? No, I'm not, you know? Do you want some more of this medicine? I mean, that's, <laughs> that's really it. And it's like, you know, there's, it creates a level of passivity and a lack of curiosity that I think is really dangerous. Because while I actually happen to believe that Tucker Carlson is a pretty dangerous person and I wish he wasn't the most watched you know television anchor on news I think he's a really important person to watch who you can learn a lot from who actually drops occasionally but frankly pretty much nightly at least one pretty big grain of truth you know that's often sandwiched in a bunch of other kind of nationalistic divisive stuff that I don't appreciate And despite the fact that I don't think he's a high character person, I think he's an important person and it's he's worth listening to. And, you know, there's no interest. There's no Mm -hmm. he's just a racist and a xenophobe. And why would I ever spend time watching him? And I think that attitude is actually pretty dangerous and part of, you know, the political tribalism
2: and. Totally the scary yeah. moment that we're in now. Yeah, you it's know, propaganda
0: because... is what the other people are doing. Sorry, Lucas, I didn't mean to. Right, no, you.
2: exactly. Well, it's it's hard because... So I'm, I'm sort of in that camp because I, I'm tired of being gaslit. Do you know what I mean? And I, you're right. I think we all would... Uh, do much better to get a healthy dose of what exactly is the other side quote unquote thinking but like i'd rather read your newsletter (laughs) (laughs) you know what i mean like i don't i want to i don't want to sit through that like i i would happily outsource that to somebody else do you know
1: yeah for sure i mean i i i've found in running this newsletter i mean i pull my readers a lot i survey them and um, we know from national polling in the U.S. that there's a pretty big survey bias. Liberals tend to be a lot more willing to respond to surveys, whether they're online or over the phone. They just, you know, they're more likely to to talk to somebody who wants to ask them about their political values. It's just a trust and institutional thing in, in, in institutions thing. Uh, but I. From my surveys that I've done, I know probably about 30% of my readership identifies as being conservative or right of center, and about 45 50% says that they're left of center. And then there's sort of this like 25 30% that's just like we're, you know, either middle or independent or fringe, basically. And um, I, I have found that in order to get liberals to read my newsletter, the most compelling way for me to frame it to them is if you want to understand how conservatives think, then you should subscribe to Tangle because you'll see three really, you know, arguments from the right that have gone through my filter of like, this is something I believe is worth reading and is relevant to the debate of the day. And then you can see you know, the left responding to those arguments, engaging with it, me engaging those arguments a little bit. And that seems to be a pretty good pull. It's like, a, it's like an intellectual kind of curiosity, and it has to be somebody who's sort of open minded or inquisitive or knows that they're in their own information bubble. And if I'm advertising to the right or talking to somebody who's more conservative, it's like, oh, well. I think the mainstream media is full of shit too. So come hang out with me and I'll, you know, I'll give you a little bit of both and we can argue and debate. And there's a lot of interest, you know, from that side and like this sort of independent pushing back on the mainstream narrative. Now, I think there's a little bit of a trap there because the heterodox thinkers, being a heterodox thinker is kind of like an ideology in and of itself. And I think a lot of most popular heterodox independent writers fall into that where it's like sometimes the mainstream's the mainstream because it's right and that's just like Mm. it's it's close to being a, a fair and true representation of what's going on and so when you're always viewing it skeptically or you're always allergic to it you end up putting yourself in some some weird positions i mean again i the ukraine thing i think is a good example of that i think the mainstream consensus on both sides of the aisle right now is we shouldn't go to war and we shouldn't put boots on the ground in ukraine but we should do everything we can to pressure vladimir putin to not invading ukraine and i think that's the right position i think that that is what we should do i think we owe it to the ukrainian people and i think you know if we're going to get our stick our noses into the order of the world that's a good way to do it with sanctions and pressure and you know a big stick and not putting 18 year old kids in a war zone um so you know i I, but but i see a lot of people who are because they're sort of in that heterodox ideology and this is what the new york times editorial board says we should do it can't possibly be the right thing Mm. and so they have to criticize it and it sort of puts them in this awkward position of like oh no i think we should totally let vladimir putin run over a country of 40 million people and caused you know a giant humanitarian crisis and probably world war three which like i don't think is a good idea (laughs) um so you know it's uh yeah it can it can be a trap as
0: well Mm -hmm. yeah i mean it ends up i think a, a trap and at this point kind of a stereotype right it's like i don't i think that at least in my mind heterodox thinking at its best is a willingness to think and to think things through right and not and and judge and assess and discern based on what you feel like are the merits of an argument a position you know if we're looking at evidence in a case and coming up with a conclusion like all of those things um i definitely while i am not as much of a fan of the new york times as you are based on what i've read tangle, i don't out of hand think that because it's in the new york times it's full of shit Uh, Though I find often, at least in areas where I know something about the topic, that there are numerous egregious factual errors that get through that don't seem to get questioned, um, which troubles me a lot because they have still so much legacy credibility and clout.
1: I, i'm interested i mean could you i'm i'm curious like, yeah the, what, the th- one what of the kind things, of topics come to mind well one of the things that
0: i found most troublesome is you know when the sort of like 5g conspiracy theories were bouncing around um the new york Times published an article that categorically stated that the 5g was safe now you don't have to i'm not suggesting uh, by any stretch that there are alien mind control, bugaboos, whatever the fuck it is in 5G. Jewish space lasers, like Right, exactly. Um,
1: but I think there are, but that's okay. I mean, that's fair. And there may
0: be. I'm just saying I'm not actually making that case. The case I'm making, it. this is a technology that really hasn't been very well studied. And the studies that I've seen have raised very clear concerns about what's going on with people's well-being. We already know that there are huge issues with cell phone use and brain cancer uh, for extended use. Um, And so releasing more. uh, Weird electromagnetic electromagnetic spectrum shit into the environment when we're already so saturated with things that we didn't evolve to contend with, I think an Occam's razor position would be, well, we're not really sure this is a good idea not categorically, this is going to be safe when there's no evidence that, Hmm. because it hasn't, it hasn't been done. So you can't actually do a study on what's going to happen when you do this and expose the general population to this much more um, electromagnetic spectrum on a daily basis, right? So that's one of these things where it's like, it's fine if you want to say these people are fucking insane. And there's absolutely no reason to think that, People are trying to use 5G for mind control or that it's the cause of a virus. However, to make that case by saying that something is fundamentally safe when A, it doesn't take long to do the research to find out that that is certainly not agreed on and B, um, there's just not enough evidence to make that case, even if everybody did agree, you would still be jumping the shark in my opinion by saying, well, this thing that we haven't done that's going to be widespread in a way that is incomprehensible will have no repercussions other than the ones that we've predicted because complex systems are simple and you know have linear cause and effect relationships that's what makes them complex systems not gonna happen
1: (laughs) it's interesting I mean I so I was kidding I mean I really don't know anything about the 5G stuff except that I think it's supposed to make my phone faster which sounds fucking sweet um but I do, I mean, just picking up on what you're saying a little bit and hearing your argument, I, I do think one thing that the media, you know, I hate talking about the media as a monolith because it's just so many different things, but mm-hmm. a, a, an organization like the New York Times yeah. is lacking is like a level of intellectual humility that I think mm-hmm. is really important. And that that's definitely something I try to bring to tangle. I mean, I, you know, very often will just say like, I don't know, you know, and, 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 and literally without fail, the days that I do that are the days that I get the most positive feedback is somebody writing and being like, dude, I can't tell you how refreshing it was to just hear you say you had no fucking idea what was going to happen today. And, yes. and, and like people are looking for that. They're not, they don't need to be told. And obviously that's not the job of like a science reporter at the New York times. They're the ones who are supposed to be informing the public. But I think, to your point, there's like a, a way to do that in that format. And in that kind of article where it's like, you know, here's four experts saying that everything's gonna be fine. And here's like one guy who maybe is considered a little bit fringe, but he published this research thing about, you know, this potential cause of whatever 5G has on something. And like, I think that's fine to do. I think that's what people are looking for. It's what they want.
2: Yeah. I wouldn't mind a modicum of humility in the public health announcements anyway. Just saying like, we, this is the probability, or these are the stats, this is the research that's been done. And we can't say definitively, but, and I find some people do actually have pretty decent caveats, or just like, it is generally safe. And then that, but that sort of starts this tailspin with most of the public, we're like, well, just tell us what it is, you know, black or white, yes or no, should we take it, should we not? It's like, but that's, kind of the the what we're aiming for isn't it like we're aiming to um, be frank with the public and give information and then you make the choice because isn't that what our free society is supposed to be about like the the American dream is all about like you know we're supposed to have freedom of choice you know so the best we can do is present well the facts that we have and then go for it what do you, what do you think?
1: Yeah. And, and I do, I think the desire for that is increasing. The demand for that is going up basically exponentially every year based on, you know, the conversations I have and the polling I see and the growth of, you know, information sources that are kind of promoting that attitude. I think contrary to the narrative that we are becoming more divided, which I do think is true in a lot of ways. I also think that it's possible we're sort of like right now witnessing the bounce off of rock bottom. Um, And I'm very hopeful that that's like a trend that will become more apparent in the next five or 10 years.
2: Yeah, I I see. It's exactly what I was just uh, imagining. It was like, we're at this three-dimensional expanse and it's a polarization of the other sides, right? But as as we know with universal principles, things have to revert back in, right? You get to the you know the you get to the, the the terminal ends of your potential expansion. It has to come back around, and thus we will get closer. And then eventually we'll you know we'll have a sort of a Venn diagram of things we actually agree on, or at least. We acknowledge that we agree on and then it'll be a lot more harmonious at least for a time and then it'll expand right back out yeah <laughs> hopefully that won't be for another like 100 200 years but like i think in our lifetime we're gonna see um we're gonna see a lot more common ground and probably because of a lot of things like your newsletter do you know
1: thanks yeah i mean i i certainly hope so i think uh you know i I wrote about this sort of in the big media bias piece that I did, um, which was sort of like my kind of manifesto on what I see in the world right now. And, you know, I, I think the long and short of it is that, you know, the the major media outlets that are the most watched or the most read are concentrated in New York and Los Angeles and Chicago And their employees are highly educated people living in like urban centers. And so they present the news through that lens. And then in order to try and, you know, what, what I described is like because of their insecurities about living in that bubble, in order to balance it out, they like get on a plane and fly to rural Kentucky and go into a diner and put a mic in people's faces. And the result is that people see two versions of the world, which is like, the New York Times version and the rural diner in Kentucky version. And it's like 90% of the country is actually living in between those two spaces. And we don't really see them that much, you know, I, and that's not to say, I mean, you know, I, I don't remember how much exactly it is now it's probably like 60 or 70% of America or something is in urban centers, but like, you know, Louisville, Kentucky is a different place than sacramento which is a different place than seattle which is a different place than chicago which is a different place than new york so even an urban center the politics the makeup of the city the way they view the world the consequence of living in that place you know it reflects a lot differently on politics across the country so um i am like firmly do believe that people have more in common than they think or they've been told or they've been shown and that it doesn't have to be like a big kumbaya thing. I mean, that's a big big part of what I do too, is like, I'm not trying to get everybody to sit in a circle and hold hands and pretend we all love each other. It's not gonna happen, but we have better points and counterpoints to each other's arguments than a lot of people think. And I do think that that's really important. At the very least, we can like, you know, address each other with some modicum of respect or understanding or empathy, And, uh, you know, I try and lead with that personally in my own writing. It's not always easy to do, but it's, you know, I think it's really important given the moment that we're in right now.
0: I'm curious to hear, (laughs) see how the best way to frame this and you, if you don't want to answer this question, that's totally fine. Um, bear in mind that we don't have a, a massive audience for this podcast so um but i'm curious come on yeah sorry Uh, i don't want to burst anybody's bubble but um no one's looked at the stats recently
2: let's just say that's totally fair
0: no one has because we never do um i'm curious to hear what you think about the state of politics on the level of like i have this feeling um on a different level than the, like, we've expanded out and perhaps we're coming back or we're coming off of rock bottom. I mean, there is also the possibility of we keep expanding until it breaks, right? Uh, Which is another dynamic in that kind of universal patterning and principles that can happen too, which might bring everybody back together, but for a different set of reasons rather than consilience. Um, Or we might have to, you know, reach consilience because we're all collapsed onto the floor. But (laughs) I feel like the political system in this country not just on the level of tribalism is in a pretty precarious state of disconnect from reality um i can talk more about what i mean by that if that doesn't make sense to either of you but i'm curious to know certainly what either of you think but isaac since you're our guest and the political writer if that is a resonant statement and if so, or if not, what you think can be done uh, to help rectify some of the like, I mean, it seems like a lot of theater to me without much substantive work getting done. And it concerns me because I think that I am, I'm definitely optimistic about what um, possibilities for the future which is not in a Pollyanna way or in a, my head is not in the sand about the fact that we're in an incredibly precarious moment where lots of things are potentially close to tipping points that we might not be able to untip <clears throat> but even if there is collapse at some level or at many levels life will go on in some fashion and it you know it's a failure of imagination for me to think that there might not be beauty and goodness in that life, even with a whole bunch of challenges that we can't imagine. Nonetheless, like I don't I don't think that that is some kind of crazy speculative fiction fantasy. I think that there's plenty of really hard data that supports that position that I just expressed. And I do not see that what's going on in the political machine is in contact with that in any real way. And that I find deeply concerning. Um, So this is kind of what I mean by being decoupled from reality is that we're living in a world where there are challenges that are getting hand waved um, by the posts that are supposed to be leading.
1: Yeah. I mean, so I think there's sort of two threads, I guess. I I mean, it's a, it's a really big question that I'm totally happy to unpack. And one I think about a lot for sure. Uh, You know, I think on the one hand as a fundamental principle politicians are trying to win elections and they're interested in maintaining their power. I, I have interviewed a lot of politicians. I know some politicians. I'm not trying to portray them as all, you know, evil people or something. I just think it's, if you believe in your cause, then your first and strongest instinct is to maintain the power to, to execute your belief system. And I think it's totally natural that politicians' first priority is to win elections. That's why they're politicians. Um, Because of that, though, I think they're often forced into rather silly and precarious positions that I find are detached from reality. Now, I know you're sort of asking a little bit of a separate question, which is like, I think, I guess to say it back to you, it sounds like you're asking, you know, why aren't politicians addressing the issues that Americans actually care about in a more direct way? It seems like their reality of what's important is decoupled from what a lot of people feel like is important. Is that a good way to put it?
0: Uh, totally. I will say this about any question that I ask, is it's more of like a catalyst for further conversation. So if that is what you're hearing, I love it. And I'm very curious to hear what you have to say about that.
1: Yeah. So, I mean, I, I I think that there are issues that win elections and there are issues that Americans think that they care about. And those are actually two separate things, believe it or not. Um, I know personally that I, you know, I, again, I, a great example, just living in New York, I lived through the George Floyd protests in, you know, the summer of 2020 and Basically, every single person who I knew and every single one of their friends participated in protests against police violence and the carceral state in America. Um, I, I, and I don't mean what I'm about to say in any kind of... I don't mean to degrade the meaning of those protests as a not a tangential sidebar. My most radical political view is that I don't believe we should put human beings in cages. I think we should basically abolish all prisons um that's one of the only very radical perspectives i have i think if you stop and think about it for more so than so 20 radical. seconds it's kind of insane that we lock humans in cages in eight by eight foot rooms that's not really right
0: uh and then so enforce essentially slave labor for those people that we put in cages so that we can totally
1: and also make decisions about whether we're going to put them in the cage or not based on a system that's entirely broken and has a long track record of, of coming to incorrect conclusions anyway um that was the only thing that mattered in New York for a year and it was like the driving political motivator and then we had a mayoral race in the city which is the most important race to win if you believe that we should change how policing happens in the city. And I would say maybe 30% of those friends I'm talking about voted in it. They didn't vote. They, it's, not, it's not even that they didn't go, it's not that they went out and voted for the wrong person to get what they want. It's that they like literally didn't, oh, it, I forgot to register oh you know whatever i'm like i can't get out of work that day you know some people totally legitimate excuses especially my friends who don't make um, as much money and can't take off from their shift to get to the polling place or whatever but like they didn't go vote it wasn't like it was like the number one issue but it didn't actually motivate them to go vote the thing that motivated them to go vote is that they hated donald trump and so you know they showed up in 2018 for an election that didn't have even remotely close to the same consequences for what was happening in New York City, but they showed up for a midterm election because they hated Trump and they were scared of the country. And so like, we can talk about how, you know, healthcare is like a an issue that matters for most Americans or in New York City, you know, defunding the police is a matter, a, a, an issue that matters for a lot of progressives, but the, the issues that actually matter to people are the ones that get them to show up and participate in the democratic process and politicians know that the things that get people to show up and participate are fear and anger sure and and those are the number one and two drivers of action across the political spectrum so if you're a democratic politician you could talk about up and down i mean joe biden's a great example he 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 passed the child tax credit i mean he was sending 300 dollars per kid to every parent in America and nobody fucking cared. Nobody gave a shit. It was like the most transformative seemingly should be the most transformative policy, you know, the the numbers about him lifting millions of kids out of poverty, those that's not like made up. Those are real stats about, you know, the difference between having 3 or 600 dollars of extra income or not and literally nobody gave a shit. I mean, I'm sure a lot of those families noticed briefly, but when the policy disappeared, they they didn't hit the streets to protest and get it back. You know, they didn't, There there wasn't this huge uprising. It's like, that's an issue that's supposed to matter, but it doesn't. So all of this, I guess, is sort of like a roundabout way of saying that the disconnect that you're sensing, I think comes from a place of us, people who are observing this, you know, in a way where the the ups and downs of politics sort of affect us a little bit, maybe not a ton, and we really care and we want to care and we're engaged. But like the things that we think matter are all secondary to the things that politicians really understand matter, which are like really basic human instincts about, you know, motivations, what gets them to show up, what gets them to take action. And that's why, you know, a lot of politicians spend their time trying to scare people about the other side and spend their time telling people there's a caravan of poor Hondurans coming to the border and we all better gear up or, you know, we're screwed or we're going to have communism or whatever. I mean, none of this stuff is like ever going to affect 99% of Americans. The things that are going to affect us are like education and healthcare and some immigration policy And, you know, gun control, maybe if you live in certain places where that's a really big issue. Um, So I guess all that's to say that, like, I I think that in some ways you're almost not giving the politicians enough credit. It's like they're smarter than you think. Oh, no, I,
0: I am totally giving them this credit. And this is actually a great refinement of the point that I'm making is that um this whole game that's being played right which is being played at a certain level of you know consciousness at a certain level of understanding of various kinds of psychodynamics right as you pointed out at the beginning of your rap is primarily about maintaining a power base right and so that for me the fact that that game is what everybody's playing is in fact the artifact that demonstrates how decoupled from the reality that I'm wishing people were attending to, especially people that are in positions of leadership rather than the game theoretic process of just, you know, sitting on a pile of winnings, whatever, however you wanted to find winnings in this case, right? The power of stack, right? Because that game, like it works as long as i mean i guess who knows how long it can work we'll find out right but there's a way where the further we get away from um government actually leading and governing in such a way that the overall well-being and health of society which of course is composed of individuals so the well-being and health of those individuals that make up society and the various social systems is like what we are aiming for and those folks that aspire to lead are aiming to foster i feel like the the bigger that gap gets then the more we see tribalization the more we see just like everybody being totally captured by greed fear anger and eventually right i mean and we've seen some moments of this you know, social cohesion comes apart more and more often, and people, you know, express their displeasure by, say, a January 6th kind of situation. Um, you know, or in a what I think, because of my political leanings, a more useful way, the protests that you were talking about uh, in response to George Floyd. But nonetheless, you know, there, there's a level where I mean, it's just like in medicine, if you don't practice good hygiene, good preventative practices, you're going to end up with situations that are quite advanced. And sometimes we can do things that seem to be heroic and help people, but really, you know, a better physician is somebody who's going to help folks not end up in those situations more often than not, not somebody who's going to, like, do the crazy, miraculous-seeming intervention, like, great, if we can do it, but really well-being and health are like a daily process of attending to various kinds of needs, you know?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess just to respond to that, I mean, I think your perspective about that decoupling is definitely accurate in the sense that, you know, 70% of most politicians days are spent fundraising in order to keep power because of that structure that they're operating in. And there are a ton of potential solutions to that problem, you know, from term limits to public election funding, whatever, you know, everybody has their, their shtick or their horse that they think is going to win that race. But, you know, I, I'm a little bit of a romantic, I guess, but I still believe that the best answer is just more people participating in democracy and being informed and being you know well informed Mm. which I know is a subjective thing but um I would define it as people spending more than you know just a simple 30 minutes reading the news every day but actually investing some kind of time in in learning about issues that they care about um and then voting that way you know it doesn't have to be uh you don't have to know everything about everything but a few big important things that you care about are worth investing time and knowledge in so you know i mean it's uh look it's like i said it, i i definitely i never view my job as the kumbaya thing between the two parties and i also don't view my job as being like an eternal optimist about america i i am happen to be like feel pretty grateful to live in the country that i live in and to have been raised here and i think it has afforded me a great deal of privilege and wealth and luck and safety and security that most of the world does not enjoy still even to this day um or at least much of the world maybe not most anymore but um I'm I worry about where we're headed. I mean, I think you know, January 6th is sort of a flashpoint for a lot of people and I definitely think it was bad. I think there's a a reasonable take on that day of being kind of like, you know, 1 degree to the right of like a Super Bowl celebration party in Pittsburgh where people burn the city down. I mean, I you know, I, I I'm not I I personally have resisted the urge to call it an insurrection or a coup. I think what Trump yeah. did and what some of Trump's lackeys did qualifies in some ways. I, I think what um, the people who stormed the Capitol and like took selfies in Nancy Pelosi's office did is not unlike some things I've witnessed in my own life that weren't historical events. They were just like stupid drunk you know excitable people doing stupid drunk things um but that all that being said uh, i do think it's you know it's a very good reference point for what a lot of people are feeling and january sixth looks a lot different if you know those people rolled into dc armed and i don't know how far off we are from that um Donald Trump runs in the 2024 election and it's a close race and Republicans control Congress and they try and pull some of the stuff that Trump tried to pull in 2020 to put him in office and take over power. And he shows up at the White House, you know, demanding to be let in. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what's going to happen. I mean, that that's, I, do I think that's a likely thing? No, I don't think it's likely. Do I think it's possible? Yeah, definitely. I think it's totally possible. Mm -hmm. Um, so, you know, there's reason to be worried about it. And I, again, to me, the answer is like pay attention and vote and be engaged and involved. And, you know, I don't buy the, I I think a lot of people live in districts where their vote doesn't matter very much. And I understand that, but it's always going to not matter if that's your attitude, um, and and so like at the very least you can you can try
2: well how much how much of that so what in in regards to trying to change the the voting public to an ideal state which is one that's i assume you know engaged and uh concerned and actually utilizing the tools that are out there
0: um Informed how, Is that one of those? Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah.
2: Um, how much of that do you think falls on on the shoulders of changing the media dynamic, or the or the landscape? Or, or that's an intertwined concept of the, the media landscape and the who actually we choose to uh, represent ourselves in, in government. Um, because to me it seems like, as, to your point before, I don't even think that a lot of the the elected officials represent uh, the viewpoints of their constituents. You know, they represent more of a fringe. But but because of the dynamics you had talked about, because you know the only thing that gets our attention and gets us motivated is fear and anger, and so. <laughs> all those politicians are represent that in their, in their uh, um, jurisdiction. And so they're right there, you know, <laughs> I don't know which has to happen first, or if it's so we inch a little bit closer to um, the ideal from one angle, and then we inch closer to the ideal from the informed angle. I mean, I, I totally understand where you're coming from. Um, I mean, I think in this moment, I think so many people are just so incredibly exhausted from the pandemic, from, I mean, six plus years of 45, you know, because he ran for like two, two years and then we dealt with him for four years and now we're still, although quite frankly, I'm like, I don't listen to anything that says his name because I don't even read any articles. I don't care. You know, except for the fact that I'd love to see a little bit of justice dealt out. That'd be great. (laughs) But because just to give me a little bit of faith in the judicial system, and I don't have much. (laughs) But, yeah, I, I wonder, you know, how much of this, how much of each piece has to change in order for it to click to actually have, you know, a representative democracy that actually functions like it was intended to.
1: Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I so so from my perspective, the single most destructive force from a media perspective is the like the television prime time lineup um across news. I think yeah. like, you know, a lot of 20 year old kids are on TikTok and getting their news from independent newsletters and whatever, but those people aren't voting they they don't vote they never vote they never have every year we talk about how they're going to they never do the people that vote are like the 40 to 80 year old demographic and that's a demographic that's getting their news from tv when they get home from work or at the end of the day or in some of the really sick cases just literally all day it's all they do it's all they watch and um you know i know for a lot of people they just think of fox news as being like the paragon of everything that went wrong in cable news. And to some degree, I think that's totally true. I know a lot of people in my family who are older Americans who watch CNN and MSNBC, and I hear them say things sometimes that I'm like, that's not true. I don't know where you got that or what pundit you heard say that, but that's just total bullshit and lacks any kind of context or nuance or whatever. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I tell people regularly that you should not watch your news in any form. You should read it. And if you can't read it, maybe listen to it. I think there's some great podcasts out there um, and good radio news still. You know, I think NPR has gone really far left, but um, I think there's a lot of good radio so that, that's number one for me. The other big one that everybody is talking about now or has been in the last few years is just the social media bubble and, um, you know, the algorithm and how it creates, you know, reinforces what you want. That is the biggest motivation, not the biggest motivation, one of the biggest motivations for what I'm doing. I mean, I think fundamentally my job or what I view as my job is to get people out of that bubble. Um is to expose people to ideas that they don't agree with uh so in that light you know i think if you're not watching cable news and you're not just trusting anything you come across on twitter or facebook wholesale you are in like a really good place as a consumer um the other thing that i think comes after that after those like kind of fundamental things because, like, you know, you can still find Gateway Pundit or Daily Costs or whatever and go off the deep end on the left or the right and read some wild stuff with Google, um, is just media literacy. I mean, it's, you know, it, in the journalism world, that is something a lot of people talk about. I don't think that's an issue that normal Americans care about or think about. Um, in my mm-hmm. world, it's something that is discussed all the time is that, you know, it's, it's like the same thing about, no, like the joke about how, how anybody can graduate high school without knowing how to do their taxes or graduate college without knowing how to do it. Like, why isn't there a class on this? It's like, Mm -hmm. how do, how do people not know the difference between an opinion piece and a news story when they open the Washington post? Like that's a really big fucking deal. Mm. Uh, And so that is up there for me in terms of like, reforms and things that could change uh i am in the very germane stages actually of talking about building a kind of workshop like a media literacy workshop that's going to be like an arm of tangle that i am going to try and spread and um maybe present this workshop in either corporate settings or educational settings like high schools and colleges uh, you know, if you're going to talk about it, be about it. So I'm trying to be about it. And, um, you know, and and I, I, I think it's really, really important. Like, uh, again, that article that I just released, it's at the top of my mind because I wrote it with a media bias story. You know, one of the things I did in that piece was just put the New York times and wall street journal side-by-side on a straight news story and show how they're covering the exact same event. And, you know, I got so many people who wrote in like, wow, like that just blew my mind. I couldn't believe reading that. And I'm like, yeah, if you're only reading the New York times, like you are only going to get a certain kind of story. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's not because the New York times is an awful paper. It's just because the people they hire tend to have a certain kind of bias. And the the people at the wall street journal have a mirror version of that. And it doesn't matter who you are. It's going to come out. Um, and so, you know, in a self-serving way, the lessons like go subscribe to Tangle, read tangle.com. Uh, but in the, in like a, a more serious way, it's like, it takes a little bit of work to actually get a really holistic view on an issue. Um, and so, you know, right now the media literacy thing and informing people about how to you know, navigate the news, teaching them how to navigate the news, I think is critically important. I think it's totally irrelevant if, you know, a hundred million Americans are getting their news every day from Fox, CNN, MSNBC, and Twitter. So to me, those one and two priorities are still like try and get people off TV news and off social media. I think those are actually quite a bit harder Um, but I would put like a level of media literacy education in public high schools, pretty far up there on my list of things that I think would change the game.
0: Do you know the consilience project? I do not. I'll, I'll send it your way. I think you will appreciate it's a, um, that's kind of their project is to Mm -hmm. create deep, well, It's got several arms. One is kind of foundational at the moment. Most of it is is long form essays, but and the bar at the moment is also pretty high in terms of the intellectual acumen that's necessary to get through it. But the long term Mm -hmm. goal is actually to create videos for teens and young adults. Um, Hmm. And so they're looking at basically helping people understand bias, um, propaganda, You know, various kinds of epistemic orientations, like, you know, how to parse your own research. Um, But it's a bunch of really brilliant people working together on um, long form written pieces that are educational in nature that are exactly in this media literacy space. Uh, So I'll send that your way
1: yeah very cool that sounds interesting yeah
0: so i know that you have to go pretty soon so i wanted to see if there's anything you want to land this plane with before you have to duck out
1: yeah i mean um good god open-ended questions are so hard
2: (laughs) we can also Uh, plug something too
1: (laughs) No, look, I mean, go subscribe to Tangle. That's my baby. That's why I'm here. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm sure there'll be a link, whatever. Tangle.com is mm-hmm. the URL. It'll take you right there. I, I think uh, I often like to land the plane of this conversation by just saying it's a really healthy thing to talk about politics with people. Uh, I think there's a prevailing attitude in our country right now that, like, because politics are so divisive, we should stop talking about them. It's like not appropriate dinner conversation. Mm-hmm. It's not cool at the bar. It's not cool with your friends. And so, what people start doing is they engage politics on the internet, which is kind of a shitty and cruel place sometimes. Yeah. Um, so, I tell people all the time. I think like, you know, your neighbor's got a Trump flag and you've got a BLM flag and you guys are like giving each other the finger every day. Like maybe walk over there with a six pack of beer one day and knock on the door and try and hash some stuff out. It it, it will probably go better than whatever you're imagining. And if it doesn't, you know, what the fuck? Nothing changed for you. So who cares? You got nothing to lose. Um, I talk about politics with people I disagree with all the time because of my work, I find it very engaging and enjoyable, but, um, you know, I've been in a lot of situations where people have sort of referenced a political idea in a setting where it was deemed inappropriate. And maybe somebody at the dinner table has said, well, let's not get into that. And my response is like, let's fucking get into it. I want to hear it. Like, why Mm -hmm. do you think that? Um, and you know, practice listening. I mean, my, my big thing is like the intellectual humility. You don't have to know everything. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I'll end with this, which is that I, I think one of the most popular pieces I ever wrote was about, um, my, uh, made up friend named Jared who knows everything. And every single time I've heard him engaged in a political discussion, he's been right. He just always wins the argument. It's amazing and magical and whatever. And I sort of open this piece describing this friend who's just like the most knowledgeable person I know. And then I tell people, you are Jared. You think that you know everything. When was the last time you literally said, oh, wow, that like I really changed my mind about that issue because of this thing somebody mm-hmm. I disagree with mm-hmm. said mm-hmm. It doesn't happen that much. And it should happen a lot more because you're not that fucking smart. I promise you're not. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You're really, truly not. I'm not. You're not. Nobody is. And if you haven't accepted that you were wrong about something in a long time related to funding the police or Donald Trump or america or voting rights you are probably really arrogant and in an intellectual bubble and you should consider that um try and be wrong it's good and thrilling and exciting and uh we all get stuff wrong so change your mind too that's a good thing more evidence different outcomes all those things are positives um yeah that's my spiel go subscribe to Tangle. awesome
2: awesome thank you so much Isaac.
0: Isaac it's a total pleasure man I really appreciate you taking the time to come and hang out with us this has been great
1: yeah thank you guys so much for the time um I love your name the apricot jam I yeah. had to open a here just because of that name <laughs> um yeah I really appreciate it uh let's keep in touch that's good
0: definitely Sounds all right good. all right take care take care
1: yeah